0: Can you imagine if someone was being treated for diabetes and they go into a diabetic coma and you say, we're going to actually take away your insulin and you're not allowed to get treatment here anymore. We don't do that for other diseases.
1: Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Stigmatized. Okay, everybody, welcome. I have Sam Arsenal here today with Shatterproof. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Shatterproof sounds uh, super exciting. Can't wait for everybody to hear about it. And uh, but first, uh, I want to get just some background on you personally and and what got you into the work that you're doing now.
0: Sure, happy to share. So. I have been working in the public health space essentially for all of my professional life. And I got that start actually, um, I was studying economics and I was doing research on tobacco consumption among youth. And for me, that was deeply personal. My grandmother, who was you know, one of the closest figures in my life, um, everything about her was magnificent, except that she, she smoked like a chimney. And she always told me, you know, from a young age, I knew not to smoke, and she always told me, well, when I was your age, I didn't know better, and I thought it was okay. And it bothered me because I understood that from her perspective, but I saw my peers around me smoking no, nonetheless. And so I was starting to study um, risk-seeking behavior and what, how that impacted youth decision to smoke. And through that work, I actually connected with the local public health department and did some work with a a group called Hope Coalition in Worcester, Massachusetts. On tobacco and substance use prevention, and that kind of snowballed into working with that community around all substance use behavioral health um, from the public health lens. So, despite studying economics and community development and urban planning, I've always been involved um, in that space. And addiction, you know, was has become the topic I've worked on for a few reasons. One, you know. It's, deeply personal in the fact that many of my friends and also members of my family have been impacted by addiction. But also now that I work in this space, it's it's unbelievable how often I interact with people in my life who are reaching out because they are struggling with addiction. And so I started working in this space um, from a policy public health data analysis perspective and just have continue to find more and more reasons to stay involved.
1: Well, thanks for uh, sharing that. So Shatterproof, give us the lowdown on what Shatterproof is and what it's all about.
0: Shatterproof is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to reversing the addiction crisis in America. We are small but mighty. We have about 30 full-time employees, but we work on achieving our mission in a number of different ways. So we work on federal and state public policy. Uh, We work on treatment quality, so dedicated to addressing the fragmented and confusing addiction treatment system in our country. That's really the main domain of my focus. Um, Public education. So we've created an online education program for employers that's evidence-based on prevention, treatment, and recovery with the dual aim of reducing the stigma unjustly associated with those addicted and their families and changing systemic policies. Um, and then we also have the largest event series on addiction in the country with our Rise Against Addiction 5K walks, which bring tens of thousands of families together to support each other and reduce the stigma of addiction. And then finally, we actually are starting an entire movement around stigma reduction, which broadly encompasses work in a number of different systematic domains to reduce self stigma and societal stigma.
1: Awesome. Okay, so in reading research and, and on your position in particular, I kept seeing ATLAS, the mm-hmm. acronym. And it was super interesting. Uh, and can you, can we just start with talking about that?
0: Absolutely. So, ATLAS is our quality measurement system for addiction treatment facilities. It's a project that I oversee that's currently being implemented in six states Delaware, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York, North Carolina, and West Virginia. And what we're doing in those states is essentially evaluating addiction treatment facilities compliance with what we know to be best practices in treating addiction. Um, And so if I back up a little bit, that starts with our shatterproof principles of care. So we've identified these principles of care from the Surgeon General's report, which came out in 2016. And we know that they are shown to improve patient outcomes across treatment settings for multiple patient populations. And we also know that not all addiction treatment facilities are delivering care consistent with those principles. And so we are assessing whether or not facilities are doing that um, in order to make that information transparent and available to the public but also so that providers can use that information for quality improvement so we can support them in adopting best practices and so that we can align payments and market forces with the delivery of high-quality care, where in some cases there's currently perverse incentives in place. Um, And so we actually do that through three data sources. The first is a treatment facility survey, which we've disseminated to the 2,500 addiction treatment facilities in the six states. Um, The second is through insurance claims data. So we're working with a combination of both Medicaid partners and commercial insurance partners to calculate measures. And then the last is looking at patient experience. So we're kind of taking best practices and lessons learned from both the healthcare rating system space and rating systems in other areas of goods and services like hospitality or Amazon reviews and combining those to make a system where we can actually assess a patient's experience at an addiction treatment facility and make that information available to others who might be seeking care.
1: Awesome. Okay, so how did you come up with? those six states? Did you just reach out and those are the ones that latched on or because it's kind of a geography wise, it's a good spread there.
0: Yeah. And that was our goal was to have a a good spread of states and kind of states that are at different stages of their work around the addiction crisis, kind of implementing different kinds of policies. We have a Medicaid non-expansion state and the others are expansion states. We have some geographic diversity among the states. And that's because we want to make sure that Atlas is not only going to be successful in a small niche environment. So our ultimate goal is to roll this out across the country. We have a lot of lessons learned already from phase one in these current states. Um, the website will launch in those states in July. And we're starting to talk about how can we bring more states on board. Um, and it helps when you have a state that kind of looks and uh, feels like and you know, engages in policy and regulatory behavior in the same way. Oh, it worked in the state next to me. So I think we can make it work here.
1: Great. So are we talking for profit, non profit amongst those twenty five hundred? Is it a s is it a just a kind of hodgepodge of all different kinds of institutions?
0: Yeah. It is kind of a hodgepodge. That's a good way to describe the system right now. It includes all licensed specialty addiction treatment facilities. So that includes a range of levels of care for addiction treatment. So outpatient, intensive outpatient, residential treatment, they're all included. Any facility that's licensed by the state to provide addiction treatment or withdrawal management. The reason that's important is because there's a big part of the addiction treatment universe in a sense and recovery universe that's not a part of that Um, and that's recovery homes where or sober living facilities you have to be careful because the terminology means different things in different states Um, but we have we have a system that's looking at the medical interventions. And so a living facility that's not providing any treatment services wouldn't fall within that bucket at this stage. We also aren't looking at individual physicians. So right now there's a really big move to have office-based opioid treatment um, to allow for buprenorphine prescribers in the primary care setting and other settings um, to support patients with substance use disorder. That is incredibly important in addressing the crisis but those individual providers are not included in Atlas at this time.
1: When did this concept start and when did you sh- start rolling it out to people? I'm I'm interested in the the insurance providers and was that an act of congress to get them to kind of latch <laughs> on and ex- and potentially expose some things?
0: Yeah, so we started talking about Atlas about 2 years ago now and actually it was a discussion that came about with many, many stakeholders in the room. So insurance providers were in the room, Medicaid representatives were in the room, as well as policymakers, data scientists, and representatives from the provider community. And the ultimate question was, how do we transform the addiction treatment system, right? We know that addiction can be treated with the same effectiveness as other chronic diseases, has a lot of the same issues in terms of genetic vulnerabilities and behavioral factors, high comorbidities, but we're seeing so much variation in the types of treatment that people are receiving. How do we change that? How do we shine the light and start to support quality improvement? And we realized we really needed to have a starting point of a baseline of data, be able to track improvements and be able to align those market forces with best practices. Um, and so with this group, we called it our Substance Use Disorder Treatment Task Force, we identified those principles of care. And that was really the foundation. And instead of just releasing the principles of care, we said, well, you know, people release white papers and recommendations all the time and they sit on the shelf and they don't really get anywhere. So we actually released those principles of care with sign-on from health insurers who agreed to three things they agreed to identify, promote, and reward care that aligned with those principles. So they were saying, we are going to financially support the movement of the addiction treatment system in the right direction. Um, and we now have 22 health plans that cover over 200 million lives who signed on to that. Um, the problem there is the first thing that they agreed to is to identify systems and facilities that are delivering those best practices. And right now, you can't do that. So we said, we need to create an assessment, a quality measurement system. At the time, we were calling it a rating system. In hindsight, we wish we hadn't done that because it has some punitive implications. Um, and so we set out to do that. So we actually gathered Information on what quality measures existed that aligned with our principles of care. So, the quality measurement space, you know, I was very naive at the time. I didn't realize it's really this multi million dollar industry and billion dollar industry on assessing the quality of healthcare. Yeah, come any healthcare provider you know are there enough quality measures out there they'll throw up their hands and say enough there are too many what are you talking about you know we're being asked to measure all these things and it's you know all of these hurdles for us and there's administrative barriers to all of this measurement and it's not useful but we said okay well we get it but the public has a different perspective they have no information even misinformation about the quality of care and this space is a little bit different there's not agreed upon outcomes so We started a crosswalk quality measures in the addiction treatment space, and we wanted to make sure that this was an iterative process that involved all of the stakeholders in the space. So Shatterproof really represents patients and families. We brought in other groups that also represented patients and families. We brought in payers and we brought in providers, and oftentimes those three groups um, may point the finger at one another for certain elements of this crisis. But we said, look, we need to come up with a system to measure this at bare minimum, we know that there's certain things every addiction treatment facility should be doing. So we identified a measure set, and then we revised it through feedback from provider focus groups and payer interviews. We had uh, the National Quality Forum, which is like the institution on quality measurement and healthcare run a strategy session with experts to review that and post it for public comment. So we had a very rigorous process to identify the measures. Um, And then we did a testing. We had over 500 providers in the six states actually weighing in on the survey that we were going to disseminate before we sent it out. So they gave us feedback, we made changes. If we couldn't make changes, which there were cases that that was true, um, we explained why, because we wanted to make sure that we were transparent in this process. Um, so it's been about a two year process to get to where we are now. We actually collected data for three months, um, October 14th to January 31st in the in the six states. And we had 49% of facilities respond. So voluntarily submit data through our online portal about the practices that they are using and the services available at their facilities. And that actually ranged. So in New York State, we had 73 percent of facilities that submitted data, um, which which is remarkable. And I think I attribute some of that to the engagement that we had kind of working with treatment providers who are looking to assess in the development process, but also being very clear that this system is being designed to support quality improvement so that every American has access to high quality care.
1: Amazing. Now, would you say they're submitting data to you? Is this a, they do it in chunks or monthly or weekly? Uh, What are they submitting and how are you getting it? Is it a goal of real time?
0: Well, that answer is, dependent on which data source we're talking about. So for the claims-based measures and the treatment facility survey, right now it's what we call a batch data update. So we've, we had a fixed period of time where we were gathering information from facilities and they would provide information on their services as of the date that they attested and submitted the survey. The claims-based measures were for a fixed period. And with claims, you have to allow for claims to be adjudicated in the claims system. So there's a delay for claims-based measures. So we can't look at the last calendar year. Usually it's at least one calendar year prior um, to make sure that all of the claims are in that system. For the patient experience survey, though, we've designed it so that right now we are gathering patient experience data from facilities in an ongoing fashion And when the site launches in July, that will continue. So there will be a leave a review button on every facility profile, regardless of whether or not that facility chose to participate in Atlas, where patients and family members can actually complete this survey. The survey is seven multiple choice questions and one open text response. And once there's at least 20 surveys for the facility, that information becomes public. So we'll show the averages for the multiple choice questions and we'll actually show the open text reviews so that other patients can read those and inform their care. We actually pilot tested that with 50 facilities in New York State before rolling it out across all of the facilities and it's been it's been great we have over 8000 surveys in so far not as many facilities that have reached that 20 patient threshold yet but we're confident that when the site launches we will have many people coming to the site to leave feedback on the quality of care. Not only because people are used to doing this in healthcare more and more, um, but because we know that people are looking for this kind of information, they remember when they were the ones searching for treatment, they want to share their stories and the experience that they had. And there's this movement kind of generally with reporting on. Um, on the services you receive, where people are are more used to doing this kind of activity.
1: So, is this also going to be a search engine? They can go to Shatterproof, or will it be a different website?
0: It's TreatmentAtlas.org, so people will be able to go to TreatmentAtlas.org and search for treatment. And so, we'll actually have the option to take an assessment first, and that's particularly important because a lot of patients or people looking for addiction treatment for themselves or for their loved ones. Um, don't actually know what that treatment should entail. There's a lot of misinformation about addiction treatment. Um, Oftentimes people think that they need to be treated in a residential stay or they don't know about medication options or um, just a lot of misconceptions. And so there's an assessment feature first. So people can have a recommendation based on their symptoms, um, their psychological status, their withdrawal potential and um, their environment to recommend what kind of care to look for. And then actually just search just the way we look, we would search for a restaurant on Yelp. So you could put in your zip code. You could also filter by certain criteria. Oh, I only want to see facilities that offer medication, or I only want to see facilities that report accepting my insurance. Um, and so that's one feature, but there will also be professional password protected portals on that list for providers and for payers and state agencies so that this data isn't always used only used for the individual looking for treatment but is also used by those decision makers to deploy technical assistance resources and align payment with best practices because it's not always individual choice that's going to drive market forces when we are talking about healthcare
1: so they do a search they bring up xyz facility And then it'll give reviews just like you get anywhere on Google or...
0: Right. So it will have descriptive information that the facility submitted to us. So like their mission statement, what special programs they offer, their hours of operation. And then it will have signs of quality care. That signs of quality care is actually directly populated from the treatment facility survey that I mentioned. Um, It's screened through a number of different validation protocol and then it's populated onto the website. And then at the bottom of the page, there's patient review section. And again, that appears once there's 20 patient reviews and is updated every 24 hours.
1: On the subject of quality care, which is sometimes hard to get when it comes to behavioral health and you know substance use disorder. and For as many of these organizations, at least in my experience, that know what they're doing and have the staff and the docs and evidence-based treatment there's just as many that don't. Has this process in the the six states that you've worked with or in your experience helped to weed those out? Or how do those get weeded out so they're not included in the, the deal?
0: Well, I think that there's probably a few different groups we're talking about when we talk about the facilities that aren't offering best practices. Because we know in a lot of cases, there's facilities with staff who are dedicating their lives to helping people with addiction, and they're facing systemic barriers, right? They they aren't adequately reimbursed. They have high staff turnover, um, you know, any number of factors that they're facing. And and we actually ask them in our survey, what are your biggest barriers? Because our hope is to help support them in overcoming those barriers. And then the second is a group, you know, the fly-by-night treatment facilities who are fraudulent or taking advantage of people, and and there may be some in between, right? Um, and so, I think what we're doing here is showing that there's facilities who maybe aren't going to get a check mark next to every principle of care, but they're going to submit their quality data to the system, and they're going to be transparent about what they're offering and what they're not. And that's a signal to the person looking for care, okay, I see this facility has quality information versus if a facility doesn't participate, they're still listed and it will show question marks next to every measure and that they did not, we do not have quality data for that facility. And so that should be a signal, right? Um, no quality data available. Why would a facility not participate in this kind of system? Um, but from this, we also start to establish benchmarks. Um, we can see the distribution of facilities that are have 180 day adherence to medications for opioid use disorder, for example. So we'll actually be able to see, okay, well, most facilities are kind of in this ballpark range of, you know, say 50%. I'm just throwing that out there as an example. And you have clear outliers. So you might have facilities that are really, really low or facilities that are really, really high. And what we'll be able to do now that we have this system is say to those facilities, how do we move you closer to the middle or how do we enforce um, laws and regulations that say you shouldn't be in business because you are not adhering to these practices? Um, and so that's partially the role of the state and other groups, but ensuring that that data is available to start to make these um, these benchmarks and, co- and the ability to compare facilities.
1: Every company, for, for the most part, that is accredited or in existence will be listed regardless whether they participate in Atlas or not?
0: Correct. And that's so awesome. I want to be clear, though, that's licensed. And in SAMHSA's database, because a lot of facilities aren't accredited, we will show it if they are. Um, accreditation is important; it's an indicator of that that facility has has met the requirements of that accrediting body, and that can mean a variety of things. Um, we think it's important to show if they're accredited, if they're licensed, and if they aren't, then we will still list them.
1: Licensed and accredited, you say most are. What are we talking? what percentage would you say are are not?
0: It ranges. It ranges by the state and it ranges with the type of accreditation you look at. Um, one thing that we're really excited about, though, you know, within this quality measurement space, there's a lot of different terms. We're talking about licensure, which is run by the state and there's kind of a minimum threshold of things you need to do, which includes like safety measures. Okay, are there, are there exit signs and things like that? There's accreditation, which comes from accrediting bodies like Joint Commission or CARS, um, and they have different types of accreditation. So it may be that they're certifying you in the behavioral health space and you actually aren't, aren't accredited in addiction. Um, and then there's a new certification program that will be coming out this spring um, from the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is certifying that facilities are actually delivering the services that are needed at a specific level of care. So there's some very nuanced differences between um, the types of residential treatment based on staffing models and what's available at the center. And so they'll actually go in on the ground in person and certify, okay, this, this treatment facility is offering this level of care. And so we'll include that information as well. But what we're also including that not within a certification or accreditation or licensure is more nuanced information, right? So we aren't just saying, yep, you're you're accredited and you're licensed. But within that, you might have things that you need to improve on or things you're really doing well. So we're actually providing that more rich information beyond just a yes or no, which we hope will help consumers looking for care, but also, again, driving the changes and supporting the providers and, and actually adopting all of these best practices.
1: I think it's really cool that all of these places will be listed, you know, with question marks, but noting that the goal here is to help them. There'll be some pressure at that point to, hey, I'm below a five green check mark place and we need to get on board. But knowing that, but knowing that the spirit behind your initiative is to help these companies get to the best practices and get to best in class care because we, we gotta have it. I mean, there's too many mm-hmm. of us out there dying and struggling and, and families that, that need the care. So I think this this um, I think it's really cool. The the initiative is is, is is really really neat and uh, a daunting task, no doubt. Let's talk about, so your organization is a pretty familiar face in Washington with, you know, a lot of all the advocacy work and, and things that you're doing. Where do you think things stand right now, to the best of your knowledge, on policy when it comes to insurance and reimbursement? And because I think the majority of people that may be, you know, new to this or have gone through it and through it and through it. Up to this point, it's for behavioral health. It's been poor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a long way to go for sure. Insurance is a huge barrier. And the problem is some of the things are national, but a lot of the things that we're seeing are also state-based. And so even if you were to just look within Medicaid, there's a broad range of policies around addiction treatment access and the use of medications and the utilization management techniques around accessing those medications that are completely varied state by state. And in some cases, we're moving in the right direction, right? So moving prior authorization of buprenorphine, That's, that's great, but we still have a long way to go in other areas. And there's a big opportunity there, I think, not only in the Washington space, but from employers. Right. When we think about health insurance, the employer is the client of the health insurer um, in in this commercial space. And so if we have employers, which right now we do, there is a lot of momentum among large employers um, to say to insurers, you know, we want to make sure our employees who are suffering with substance use disorder or their dependents have access to high quality care with minimal barrier to that care, that is going to help move this insurance practice, right? Um, Right now, we see a lot of people, majority of people, who are actually going out of network for um, addiction treatment services and partially due to stigma. So there's a lot of um, things we need to do to address that, making sure that they know that they can use their insurance for these services. Um, But within the insurers, you know, making sure that there's not... um, prohibitive barriers to accessing treatment, especially when for many people, the cost of care is going to be one of those barriers.
1: So let's talk about stigma for a second. So when you say that the stigma forces somebody to look only out of network, what, what does that look like?
0: So when, when I say that, what I mean is that people probably a lot of people who are feeling the pressure of stigma are not going to ask their employer or their health insurance where to go for addiction treatment because they don't want their employer to know that they need addiction treatment, right? They are worried they're going to be fired or um, there's going to be a backlash among their coworkers or people are going to treat them differently. And so, and they may not know that that's a covered benefit and service, right? There's some of that's awareness. So they're going to look for treatment outside of insurance, look for direct pay, um, and that's a barrier. But to your question, I think for the insurance industry, you know, of course there's there's large companies in this country who care about their bottom line, that's all they care about. And even for those companies, there is something to be said about connecting people with high quality addiction treatment. It's effective. It improves health outcomes. It reduces overall health care expenditures. It improves overall outcomes in society and reduces costs. And so, and there's a return on investment. It's cheaper to connect someone with the appropriate level of care than making than the incentives that are currently in place. So I think that you know, some people's why for why they're coming to the table to talk about this crisis may be because they're seeing how addiction impacts their bottom line, and, you know, I welcome them to the table as well, because they have to be a part of the solution.
1: So you've engaged with six states at this point, uh, probably more. But f- for the sake of, of what you're trying to do with Atlas, uh, what would you say the landscape is nationally as far as um, when it comes to stigma and treatment and advocacy in the spirit of this whole thing? would you say that, that some are better than others, everybody's kind of where do things stand?
0: It probably depends on what day you ask me that question. you know sure. some days I might have a more hopeful response mm-hmm. and, and some it can be really discouraging because you might be in a room with really progressive people and providers who are you know doing this day in and day out and and it's still revealing these you know really basic, Um, barriers and elements of stigma that are surprising, right? Like, I go to some of the foremost addiction medicine conferences in the country, and we're still having a question of whether or not medication is should be used in addiction treatment, right? I mean, we're talking about a medical disease, there's a massive body of evidence behind this, we would not bring moral implications into any other disease treatment. So to me, that's, that's, appalling and discouraging. That said, there's been a tremendous amount of progress. I think that um, we're seeing progress not only in the addiction treatment space, but in other areas of healthcare where we're having a lot more providers who want to support patients with addiction. Um, we know that there are still barriers. Pa- uh, providers don't feel comfortable treating patients with addiction, which is a Huge, huge issue. But part of that's because they don't feel like they have the right network to refer them to. That's a resource issue. Um, so we're trying to think about how we can address that. But we also have barriers that are systemic, like the requirement to have a special training and waiver for a prescriber to prescribe buprenorphine. For example, it's one of the medications to treat good use disorder, and the prescriber needs eight hours of training to, to deliver this medication to patients for opioid use disorder. Ironically, they need no training to deliver that same medication to patients for pain. If if you ask me to take eight hours of my day to, to do this thing, to learn how to do something I could do for a different condition, I mean, it's a barrier for, for providers to treat patients in the addiction space. Um, and to actually be able to have the skills and legal capability to do that.
1: It just shows kind of what we've been up against and, you know, and there's ignorance and there's moral issues. And like you said, no other disease or any other facet of healthcare, you know, questions this questions on whether you let a person die because they made a bad decision.
0: You know, part of it is part of what addiction is doing in the brain. And I think it's understanding that, right? Like some of these moral elements are part of the disease. But the data is clear that if we reduce barriers to treatment, people will do better. Um, You know, France saw a 79% decline in fatal overdoses over three years after the buprenorphine prescribing regulations were eliminated. That's drastic. We still have these regulations in place because why? Because we're worried about diversion. Does, you know, what does that even mean when, when people are often diverting medications for opioid use disorder treatment to other people who can't access opioid use disorder treatment, right? So the end of the day, we need to be clear that. Our ultimate goal is to help people um, and that we need to look past a lot of this misinformation and stigma and understand why some of the historic policies that might be creating barriers are in place in the first place.
1: Okay. So one subject that I haven't really talked about on the show to date is harm reduction. And I know that is important to what you're doing. It's important to helping people get the care and, and the help that they need, but can you give us, just for the people that may not know, what is harm reduction and what could that look like in a couple of different ways?
0: Harm reduction can be a lot of different things. Um, I think that the key to harm reduction is the notion that you're meeting people wherever they are. And you're not saying you need to be abstinent or you need to be in treatment in order to be allowed in treatment, right? When we think about it that way, it's, It's kind of a backwards assumption. Um, It's saying that if someone is using substances, we can support them by providing clean needles, for example, needle syringe exchange programs to minimize the risk of them transmitting disease or being exposed to other harm. And within each of those avenues, it's creating an opportunity for that individual when they might be ready to enter treatment rather than a barrier to entering treatment. I think it even goes so far as some of the really challenging notions that have existed in addiction treatment for a long time is that if someone relapses in treatment, a lot of programs kick them out. Can you imagine if someone was, you know, being treated for diabetes and they, you know, eat too much sugar and they go into a diabetic coma and you say, you know, Trevor, uh, this you made a poor choice. And we know part of that, you know, attributed to your disease, but we're going to actually take away your insulin and you're not allowed to get treatment here anymore. You know, we don't do that for other diseases. And so it's important to recognize that there are ways of treating people with humanity, no matter where they are in this process, which is long and complex. Um, to make sure that they have access to things that are going to reduce the overall risk, reduce potential harm, and connect them to treatment services.
1: Sometimes you get kicked out or not even be led into certain 12-step meetings if you're using an MAT, which is Mm -hmm. disgusting. But, you know, a lot of people, and I will be the first to say that very early on, the the thought of non-abstinent sobriety if you want to call it that how that even looked but when you take somebody's humanity away and you're shaming them for using a tool to potentially help aid them to to get onto a road of of recovery it's just just shows we got a long way to go but Mm -hmm. it is getting better
0: yeah and i think one important point is that we have this cancel culture in a lot of ways, right? You say one thing that people disagree with and they tune you out. I think we have to be receptive to the people who say, you know, I I used to be one of those people who thought that that was not being in recovery if you're on medication as a treatment. And I learned that I was wrong. And I was wrong then, and now I know, and I've changed the way I've acted. And we see that a lot, right? I, I talk to a lot of people from policymakers to people in recovery who say, I was a the person they kind of whispered with their breath, like, I, I used to feel that way. It is all I knew. Well, that's all you knew, and you learned and you've adapted. And I think that we need to make sure that the people who are um, conveying these misconceptions that we're we're also treating them with humility and educating them about why the things that they're saying or doing could be harmful. So we aren't just saying, okay, it's bad that you're doing that and you have to stop or I'm not coming here. You know, We we need to work with everybody and kind of bring them in and stop this, you know, cancel culture of pushing people out for saying the wrong thing.
1: So another thing that I thought was really interesting, which I heard in another interview that you gave was when uh, somebody is looking for, resources or wants to ask the question on where to find care is you can talk to your primary care doctor, which I myself honestly have never even thought of that. I never would have thought about it when I was going through my struggle and I wouldn't have thought about it until I heard you say that, which is sad because it should be in primary care docs should have some basic understanding of addiction medicine, what are you seeing uh, on, on your end doing the work that you're doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that primary care doctors should be that main point person to give an initial assessment and guidance on where to seek addiction treatment, what kind of addiction treatment might be most effective. And your primary care doctor should manage your overall health. So being aware of that condition and treating other comorbidities is really critical. Um, Universal screening for addiction is our first principle of care. So as an organization, we firmly believe that that should be a starting point for people with substance use disorder. But you're absolutely right. For many people, it's unfortunately not. And that can be because they don't want to self advocate in that way. They don't feel comfortable. They're not asked by their primary care provider and we know that primary care providers are range and how comfortable they feel in treating substance use disorders so we did a survey in Massachusetts of around stigma of treating patients with substance use disorders in the ED and PCPs and within OBGYNs other healthcare specialties that are interacting with people, but not specifically for addiction, to see their comfortability and how much they're actually engaging with patients with with addiction, specifically opioid use disorder and how comfortable they are directing them to treatment. And it really ranges. There is some pervasive stigma even among healthcare providers around addiction. There's misinformation and there's a lack of resources. So we need to make sure that they're equipped in You know, treating and even referring out to treatment when they can't treat them themselves um, for this disease because it is a disease. But we also know that in the medical education system, there's been a disparity in the amount of education that people receive on addiction treatment in medical schools, you know, nursing and other healthcare specialties. And that that is starting to change. So we're starting to see more and more requirements about a minimum level of education for healthcare providers on addiction treatment in the same way that they'd be equipped to treat other chronic diseases. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a hopeful thing that we want to make sure that people can access addiction treatment From their primary care provider. I think in some cases, it's absolutely true. It's the right first stop. And in others, there's a long way to go.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, at many points in this interview and and all the work we do, we realize that we have a long way to go. But what we're all doing for the greater good is going to hopefully continue to bubble up to the surface and hopefully uh, eventually everybody will be on board. And thank you for the work that you do. Uh, This is exciting time. So when does your site go live?
0: Atlas will go live in July of this year in the six states. And we're actively working to identify additional states to expand to after July.
1: And what is that website?
0: It is treatmentatlas.org.
1: TreatmentAtlas.org. Okay, well, we'll put that on the notes as well as everything uh, about Shatterproof and, and the great work that you're all doing. But I want to thank you for spending some time and wish you uh, all the best moving forward.
0: Thank you so much, Trevor. It's been great to be on and uh, thank you for everything that you do.
1: You got it. Take care.
0: Take care, everybody. bye
1: Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.